strangers and good evening and uh, good evening, good morning or whatever, good afternoon. We've got a truly global audience, which is lovely. Uh, yeah, welcome to This Strange Life. I'm Mickey, the conduit between the freaks and the geeks, and we've got standing in for Willie tonight. My name's James, James <laughs> Newman. I'm a writer living in Bangkok. Yeah, author extraordinaire. Uh, and tonight on the show, we've got uh, Mark. I- I've been trying to get you for a long time. Uh, I think we first started talk. I first started talking to you back in June or July. So uh, it's been a long time coming. We've got uh, author, uh, speaker, uh, DJ extraordinaire, uh, writer, uh, author of Musical Truth One and Two, Mark Devlin. How you doing, Mark? Hi, fellas. Thanks for getting me on. And yeah, it's been a few months since we tried to uh, organise this. And it's not because I'm some diva that's hard to reach. It's mm. just that I'm busy as hell. <laughs> and uh, it does take a while for me to be able to programme these things in sometimes. But here we are. So uh, we can get it done today. Yeah. And so how, how are things over there in the UK? Well, same as ever, really challenging. It's that grey time of year, you know, cold and grey, January blues, uh, the post-Christmas come down right now. So I'm just throwing myself into work to, uh, you know, th- forget all that and just get things done. Yeah. Yeah. So d- jumping into it, Mark, we uh, we had Donald Jeffries on the show. I don't know if you know Donald. He, he wrote a book called Survival of the Richest. No, uh, I don't know him. Yeah. Well, that basically it, it's a book. It basically sort of goes into how the rich and elite stay stay rich. And what he said is that basically everyone you see, or a lot of people you see in the music industry and in, the, uh, in Hollywood, are basically born into it. Uh, mm. They're all kind of related. And I know you've given some great examples on some shows I've listened to. C- can we start going into that? I mean, Brad Pitt, for example, uh, he, he's got some very uh, strange ties to other people. Well, yeah, so many of them have. Brad Pitt, from memory, is related in some way to Angelina Jolie. So them being put together was no random accident thing. It was always on the cards. And I would suspect his relationship with uh, Jennifer Aniston was just some kind of sham, Mm. uh, temporary thing for a few years. And when you get into the family tree of Brad Pitt, these are available online. And even mainstream newspapers have published these. Uh, Not that they're any beacon of truth, but, you know, (laughs) I, I mention it just because people that like to get their information from the mainstream and think that all alternative sources are just conspiracy cranks might like to look at some of these family trees that they've published so these reveal that brad pitt in some way or another it's all cousins several times removed and all this but they are related by blood he's related to george bush uh, george bush is in turn related to barack obama who is related to dick cheney and then in the mix you have celine dion madonna uh They've even put Pocahontas in there, who I didn't even realize was a historical figure. But there's all kinds of crazy stuff in this family tree, and it just veers off all over the place. There's connections to the uh, British royal family. Well, German royal family, you know what I mean. And it's just crazy. But this is by no means an isolated case. When you get into so many celebrities, and particularly in the world of music, you find out who these rock stars that have been served up to us really are. Uh, A couple of examples I was recently looking at were Peter Gabriel of the group Genesis, you know, Um, turns out his great, 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 
grandfather, if I recall correctly, or great, great, great uncle, I think it might have been, was a one-time mayor of London. And he was a statesman and had all these kind of establishment connections, you know. And then Chris Martin of Coldplay, his grandfather turns out to have been the mayor of Exeter at one point. So what are the chances if these rock stars get to the top through just working really hard, and it could have been anyone, it just happened to be them, of them having this type of ancestry. As you mentioned, I've given given so many examples in public talks that I've done and in my books of the genealogy, the bloodlines that these uh, musicians come from. And time after time, you find links going into the world of politics, going into the aristocracy, the peerage, royalty, going into secret societies like Freemasonry and Skull and Bones, mm. going into military intelligence, the CIA, MI6, the Tavistock Institute. And it just happens over and over and over again. And anyone one that wants to write this off as just random coincidence, you know, quite frankly, you're insane when you're faced with this number of examples. Yes, you could write two or three off as just one of those things. But when it keeps happening, it becomes obvious what we're looking at here. We're looking at these individuals, these celebrities, these A-listers being served up to us by virtue of the families that they come from. It's all about their bloodlines. That's not to say that Every single famous person comes from one of these important bloodlines. Uh, certainly, there are those that they select on the basis of their talent and their skill, and they're made offers that they can't refuse, you know, and, and they're elevated to these positions of fame. But uh, for the most part, I would say with the, the really key ones, the ones that everyone's heard of, the real movers and shakers, you find it's all about the families that they come from. And what you never find is that the father's were plumbers, builders, carpenters, lorry drivers, bus drivers, dockers, construction workers. I would expect to find that, to be honest, with uh, musicians coming from bands, playing these grimy clubs and, you know, living the rock star yeah. lifestyle. I expect to find working class dads exactly. doing those kind of jobs, but you never find that. Yeah, they, plenty of they, do say, that, so. they do say that, um, you know, working class uh, kids who go into rock bands don't have the same work ethic that those who come from more privileged families do. Um, if you look at a band like the Stone Roses, for example, I mean, none of their um, ancestry is very rich. And when they got that money to record the second album, do you remember that? The, uh, uh, the single was Love Spreads on it. Yeah. Um, and they just wasted all this money on, like, cocaine. And uh, it took two years for them to complete this, uh, uh, this record. But the, like, uh, the, the more privileged um, uh, bands... The likes of Coldplay and Pink Floyd and these kind of guys have got a, a much better work ethic and they get that by way of their parents who are also successful. So maybe there's not... Uh, and, you, and you do have the poor uh, background examples. You know, it's people like Jimi Hendrix. I mean, his, his parents were, were really... Uh, Really, uh, well, yeah, you get these examples, but you can look at the likes of Jimi Hendrix and many researchers suspect him to have been an asset of military intelligence and doing, mm. you know, the bidding of uh, certain controllers and the band Oasis. They're often cited, you know, people say, oh, what about the Gallaghers? They were working class. But Oasis have been assets and tools and they've been used to yeah, further for agendas. The, for the, uh, as so many of these bands have. For the new Labour uh, campaign, right? <clears throat> yeah, so much else pushing, you know transhumanism and whatever else mm. uh, you can look at certain bands where uh 
the members come from anything but working class backgrounds, very privileged backgrounds. Pink Floyd, for example, the members of Pink Floyd were incredibly posh, you know, mm. coming out of Cambridge uh, academia and with aristocratic backgrounds in the case of Nick Mason and Dave Gilmore. Mm. And the members of Genesis attended Charterhouse Public School. Yeah. They're very posh. Uh, and Mick Jagger, believe it or not, studied economics at the London School of Economics uh, and then settled into being a rock star. So what's going on here? It seems to me like there's some grooming taking place for the roles that many of these people end up taking up. Again, it's by no means everyone, but we've got some good examples of uh, prominent musicians mm. that come from the most unlikely backgrounds D- that you Dave would never Roll's expect. Dave Grohl's a good one, isn't he? Uh, yeah, Mark. Absolutely. James Harper Grohl was his was his father. He was a politician, wasn't he? And I think he's got that's a lot right. Of, yeah. yeah, a lot of different connections. Linked to uh, William Howard Taft, the twenty seventh president of the United States. So Dave Grohl's father worked alongside Taft, and he in turn is descended from Alfonso Taft, who was the founder of the Skull and Bones Secret Society at Yale. And then you know a couple of generations down the line, you get Dave Grohl coming out as this. Uh, Rockstar, which is not the most likely of career paths for that mm. family, I would suggest, unless his role as a rock star is part of some bigger society changing mm. agenda. And uh, yeah. as you can probably detect, that's what I'm getting at here. What, mm. what did you make to the Blink 180? What, what was the guy from Blink 182 called um, who, who uh, appeared on Rogan and was spouting all this stuff about aliens? What, what was that? I can't remember his name now. I, I, but, no, I don't know that guy. I'm not really familiar with that group. I don't know who that was. Yeah, well, apparently his dad was... Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll find his name after this and, and put it in the show notes. But his, his father was some kind of uh, military guy as well. I think that, that, yeah, that's well, weird, isn't it? it? They're all military guys, aren't they? A, lo- a lot of them military guys. They are. Guys. I'd, I'd have been more surprised if you told me he was a lorry driver. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but when you tell me he's a military guy, uh, no great surprise. Yeah, absolutely. I always thought that... So, that yeah, the fact- I mean, you know... What, what, the fact, the fact what that we're looking at there is uh, social engineering and culture creation being a military-grade operation and actually being an aspect of military intelligence operations. So people think these organizations are all about keeping nations safe and surveillance mm. and spying and all this kind of stuff. But there's a very large facet of what they do on a daily basis, which is all about changing societal attitudes and uh, shaping and molding uh, the way society operates and ushering in certain agendas like transhumanism the transgender agenda there's even an agenda going on now to normalize veganism which i'm uh, you know quite alarmed to see because i choose to be a vegan myself but i recognize an agenda when i see it and when you've got jay-z and beyonce suddenly trying to coerce their fans into adopting a vegan diet you have to think well there's something going on here because, like I say, these are military-grade operations. Uh, they use the infrastructure of the military institutions to get the job done because, uh, obviously, these uh, institutions are full of people that follow orders and do what they're told and don't question, and they get the job done. And there's a hierarchy involved where uh, you know commands come up and down the line and secrets are kept and not divulged. So it's the ideal vehicle through which to get social engineering done under the radar. 
And that's what we've seen for many, many decades, so how, it turns how, out. how far back do you think this goes, uh, Mark? We, we were chatting about the, the Mayflower before we started the show, but then I, a thought just occurred to me that before you had um, mass military systems like we have now, um, artists such as painters and uh, musicians would go and work for royal families. You know, they'd be patrons of these uh, kings, you know. Um, so that, that whole mechanism seems to have been in play for almost like centuries. Yeah. Uh, and, and yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Mark, Mark, do you know uh, about the Mayflower? Uh, the, you know, the first one of the first boats that went over to the US. Well, I know the official story of it. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. Version. Yeah, and how many sort of famous and and connected people now uh, were, had relatives on that boat? Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. Uh, one of them is Jinx Dawson of the group Coven, who I've mentioned in my talks as well. Uh, Coven were this uh, oh, sort yeah. of psychedelic. Rock- rock band at the end of the 60s and their stuff was very deeply entrenched in dark occult uh ritual satanism and they made no bones about she it she was They've really open about it she was really open yeah. about it i read i read something you wrote about that um yeah i included a quote from her that i found yeah. in an interview and uh, so on the cover of one of their albums she's lying naked on this altar <laughs> surrounded by candles and all these uh, people in robes and it's as blatant a uh, depiction of a satanic black mass as you could get. Uh, if it beat you around the head with a baseball bat screaming, I am a black mass, it couldn't be more blatant. Right. Uh, and so in one of her interviews, she's breaking down her ancestry and there's everything in there. There's Freemasonry, there's satanic secret societies. She mentions she, she's a descendant of uh, some of the people that came over on the Mayflower. And she says, in her words, I'm steeped in American Illuminati. Yeah. So here's another good question. If she comes from that kind of background and it's aristocrats and society figures how does she end up posing naked on the cover of a bloody rock album and being part of a band these are not natural things that you'd expect people from these families to become you'd expect them to become lawyers and politicians and uh business leaders and all this kind of thing but you wouldn't expect them to become become rock stars so the red flags are just piling up everywhere yeah, and I guess the the thing is, you can't have as much impact, can you, on on culture and society if you if you're a lawyer, not not unless right. you know you're one of the sort of top one percent or whatever. But I guess you know it, ma- right. it makes sense, doesn't it, in a way to to have sort of cultural uh, cultural people, rock stars, actors. Well, well, that's the way to get the job done. Yeah, that's yeah. the way to change societal attitudes by the creation of false heroes and role models. And again, that's a military-grade tactic. That's actually a term that was used by the KGB during the Cold War years. There's documents that have come forward breaking down how they were handling the standoff with the United States in that time. And one of the strategies in their documents is the creation of false heroes and role models that people look up to because these people are incredibly influential. And just one sentence from one of these uh, celebrities Mm. can change the attitude of millions of people towards an issue. You know, uh, I put on an event with this uh, friend of mine about three years ago, a a one-day conference, and we weren't getting a very good uh, response to the flyers that we were putting out to promote it. So just for a laugh, I said to her, um, let's do a meme of David Beckham saying, hey, ladies, get along to this event, and one of Samantha Fox, showing me age here, uh, saying, <laughs> Foxy. Hey, hey, fellas, you know, get along to this event. And just for a laugh, we created these memes. And immediately people started commenting, oh, my God, did David Beckham really say that? And, you know, all it takes is a sentence attributed to somebody like that 
and all of a sudden you've got the attention of so many people that's the power of celebrity and that's something that the powers that be the elites whatever you want to call them would not uh let go to waste yeah that, that might be a good segue actually mark into into lifetime actors can you tell us what lifetime actors are yeah, lifetime actor was a term that was coined by the author and researcher Joseph Atwill. So he put out the book Caesar's Messiah, and he's written a whole bunch of others as well. He's got a great blog called postflaviana.com. And uh, so he coined this term to describe people that are put into the public eye, just like some of the examples I've just cited. They can be Hollywood actors, they can be TV stars, they can be musicians, they can be sports stars, supermodels, business leaders, politicians. And that's the way the public is entrained to think of them. So Brad Pitt, who you started with, people think, oh, well, he's an actor, isn't he? He's a Hollywood actor. Yeah. Well, he's a bit more than that when you get into it, as so many of them are. And when you start start digging and doing the research and you look into their genealogy, as we mentioned earlier, and you look into some of their affiliations and associations, such as Freemasonry and the Bohemian Club and Skull and Bones and membership of the Century Club and things like this, uh, connections to the Tavistock Institute in the case of some of the British ones, it becomes clear that they're rather more than just actors, musicians, you know, models, whatever. Uh, they've been placed into the public eye. So, Lifetime actor is an accurate term to describe what they're all about. They spend their entire career uh, hoaxing people into thinking they're just that, when actually they're doing some rather different work. What about George Clooney, for God's sake? You know, people think of him as an actor, but he sits on the board of the Council of Foreign Relations, which is one of mm. these think tank organizations that shapes uh, politics and society and it's similar to the Bilderberg Group and, uh, you know, the, the Roundtable and the Council on Foreign... Uh, uh, what's the other one? The bloody... Um, uh, I forget the other one. But all these, you know, secret societies and, and uh, think tank groups. George Clooney is sitting there on the board of this. Influencing uh, major yeah, decisions, major economic decisions. Um, yeah, you, and he's supposed to be just an actor. You mentioned a Tavistock Institute, which I'm, I'm completely ignorant of. Um, what, what, what is that? What, what's the Tavistock? Well, this is an organization in London. An official organization or a secret? Yeah, absolutely. They've okay. got a website and everything. They've got their headquarters in Tavistock Square uh, in towards central London, the which city. is where they got the yeah. name of the organization. And uh, it formed in the 1920s, I believe it was. It was connected to Wellington House and Somerset House, uh -huh. which were these other organizations involved in... Uh, Behavioral Modification and Social Sciences. Wow. I think that's the way they, they describe their uh, activities in the early days. And uh, they've grown and evolved through the decades. But basically what they've been involved with is uh, changing societal attitudes towards, towards things and changing culture. And one of their big roles was during the 1960s counterculture era where you had all these societal changes happening in the United States with the emergence mm. of the hippie scene, the flower power generation, psychedelic rock music, the emergence of huge quantities of LSD, which have been shown by documentation to have come very much from the CIA. They were putting mm. this stuff out into the market. You had all these big rock music festivals starting, like the Monterey Pop Festival and Woodstock. At the same time, you had all these other changes to society, such as the 
emergence of feminism and the birth control pill and you had all these riots and uh, Black Panther demonstrations and stuff like that, civil rights uh, events going on. And then over in Britain, simultaneously, you had the emergence of what was known as swinging London, mm. you know, uh, yeah, attitudes towards yeah, attitudes towards sex and love and family and uh, lifestyles were changing, uh, completely in tandem with what was going on in America. And LSD started to emerge on these shores as well at the same time. And then you had groups like the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and the Who, uh, who were playing their part in changing attitudes and changing values alongside the likes of The Doors and The Grateful Dead and all these groups from the States. And what was happening was on the British side, you had the Tavistock Institute. One of the major players to come out of that was Aldous Huxley, of the infamous Huxley family who've yeah. been up to then. Doors of Perception. In, uh, yeah, exactly. So uh, Aldous Huxley wrote the book The Doors Brave of Perception well, yeah. and Brave New World. And Jim Morrison is said to have named the group The Doors after the Huxley novel. Well, Huxley, Huxley was involved in MK Ultra, wasn't he? Along with yeah, uh, Hubbard was, and others. He was part of the yeah, team. Yeah. Aldous Huxley <laughs> was one of the co-architects of the CIA's MK Ultra program. Mm. So he went over to America for a period and he was hugely influential in that whole counterculture thing and how it all went off and the acceptance of LSD into society. So what you had was the Tavistock Institute and members of British intelligence working closely in tandem with the CIA mm. to ensure that the same kind of social changes right. were happening in Britain and America at the same time. So none of this was uh, random. None of it was by accident. Uh, the Beatles weren't just four lads from Liverpool that worked really hard, played a few gigs, crossed their fingers for good luck and made it against all the odds. Unfortunately, there would appear to be much more to the story in terms of where they came from or what they were all about. And not just them. You know, it's the same with the Stones and all these other groups. So the Tavistock Institute had their finger in many pies during that decade. And they have done all along. So mm. what we're seeing now with transhumanism, the artificial intelligence, uh, futurist society, the smart grid society that we're all being led towards, and all these attitudes towards transgenderism and LGBTQ. Uh, all of this is agendas that come out of organizations like the Tavistock Institute. These attitudes that we now have towards LGBTQ lifestyles and stuff, not to denigrate them, not to take anything away from someone that genuinely uh, adheres to that way of thinking. But when you find society being persuaded and coerced uh, and beaten over the head to kind of fall into line and think a certain way, none of that is coming from regular everyday people. It's coming from organizations that specialize in, in training and conditioning populations in how to think. And with social and media stopped. nowadays, it must be so much easier to kind of uh, engineer these kind of and create these cu cultures, right? Um, a few key well, people, is, yeah. as you say, um, tweeting the agenda, you know, and the rest of society toes the line. Yeah, society has changed so much just in my lifetime, just in the last 20 mm. years, really. You know, you think about what was 20 years ago, 1999, and there was virtually no internet. I mean, the internet was around, but not many people were using it. Mm. Uh, people had just started using mobile phones in a big yeah. way. You yeah. I, I, still I, I had a brick, a brick of a mobile phone, a yeah. Nokia 3210 or something. Me too. <laughs> I think I had a Siemens. Yeah. I've still got mine. 
<laughs> that was crazy. That, that was, uh, that was a tail end of the dance scene, wasn't it? Really, ninety nine. Well, what a, what a lovely segue, James. Uh, um, Mark, I, I know you're a DJ, and I, I'm a DJ and producer, and I love uh, Acid House, Chicago House, you know, Frankie Knuckles, and all those like all those guys. Can can we can we move towards that? Because I, 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 we've only got an hour. And I really, really want to pick your brains on that. And j- just as a, a side note, we had William Ramsey on this podcast a few a few months ago. So okay. I, I, uh, that, that's a little bit of a uh, a teaser for people as to what might be coming up. But so yeah, was uh, he was he smiling? <laughs> yes, he was indeed, sir. Yes, he was indeed. So can <laughs> okay, can you tell good. us about the second summer of love and Danny Ramplin and Oki and all those guys and and how that came about and and what you think the the undertow might be for mm. that cult, for that you know sort of cultural revolution a repeat of the hippie um, 1960s well, yeah. cultural yeah. revolution right they yeah. tried it again this won't be popular information for a certain generation of grizzled <laughs> old middle-aged ravers who uh, yeah. have nostalgic throwbacks to that era but it is what it is and like i always say don't shoot the messenger i didn't make it this way I've just found it to be this way and I'm reporting on it. So I started off my second book, Musical Truth Volume 2, which came out just about a year ago Mm. with two chapters on the UK acid house scene of the late 80s, 87, 88, and what it led to over the course of the next 30 years, the worldwide phenomenon of electronic dance music that we now have, which is truly international and without any kind of exaggeration has caught up millions upon millions of young people in its wake, uh, for whom going out now clubbing and to festivals is an inherent part of their lifestyle. So it really has been massively influential. You can't underestimate the uh, effect of it. But it all had, we're told, humble beginnings that in the UK at least can be traced back to late 1987 and then all of 88 and 89. And they were known as the second summers of love. So there's our first clue. There's our first red flag because the psychedelic era, the flower power era of the 60s, specifically summer 1967, was known as the first summer of love. And then the media adopted this tag, the second summer of love, to describe what was going on in Britain. And you can find endless quotes from that time from promoters and ravers and DJs saying, oh, it's just like what happened in the 60s with all the LSD. You know, it's like a rebirth of that whole thing. And absolutely, that's what it was. But it wasn't by accident. So many of these misty-eyed, nostalgic uh, people seem to think that it was just organic and grassroots and it just came out of this amazing maverick spirit that a lot of people had to try and create something dynamic in Britain at that time. But I would suggest, and I do in the book, that to a very large extent, you would have had organizations like British Military Intelligence and the Tavistock Institute behind these events to make sure they went off in certain directions. So the official story of how this acid house scene all got started is very simplistic and it sounds like a fairy story. And I've heard so many of these now that I'm very suspicious of them when I hear them because they just sound like such simple ways of explaining things. We get this story endlessly repeated But these four DJs from London went on holiday to Ibiza Mm. in late August 1987. It was Paul Oakenfold for his birthday. And he had Danny Rampling with him, Nicky Holloway and Johnny Walker. And the story they tell forever is that they went out clubbing to Amnesia. They heard DJ Alfredo playing. He's a Portuguese uh, guy, right? Mm. Yeah, I think he's Argentinian. Argentinian, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. South American, yeah. 
Yeah, so he's he was playing this really eclectic set of all these different sounds, and they'd never heard anything like it, they say, and they were partying open air under the stars, mm-hmm. and they were doing ecstasy, because suddenly, you know, these e-pills had appeared out of nowhere. And they said they had this amazing spiritual epiphany where the music all made sense, and it was just this amazing awakening. And they felt to bring to bring this bring this bring this all back back to Britain. So it was just what we needed at the time. And they came back and started their club nights. Danny Rampling started Shum. Uh, Paul Oakenfold had Spectrum, the Theatre of Madness, and uh, Future. Nikki Holloway started Sin. And uh, we're told that from there. This all happened at the same time as the emergence of Chicago house music, by the way. You had all these records coming over from uh, DJ International and Trax Records, all these amazing house records from Chicago, and then techno music from Detroit. And it all happened just at the right time for London DJs to start embracing this music and taking this more open-minded, eclectic approach to their sets. And we're told that everything just spiraled quickly from there. We got the rave scene from that. We got early dance music festivals going into the 90s. You had the birth of the super clubs like Ministry of Sound. Interesting name, Ministry. Yeah, Ministry of Sound, yeah. And Cream and Gatecrasher and all these. And then all all of a sudden, you've got, uh, over the course of a few years, an absolute cultural phenomenon which, like I say, has changed the lives of millions of people. So you can go back and do a bit of digging into some of these early days and how it all got started, and some interesting things start to emerge. Just recently, Danny Rampling posted a picture of himself in army uniform, and he was apparently part of this uh, elite army unit based in Aldershot in 1983. So he's got a picture of himself and he posted it on Facebook and he said, I was proud to serve with this great group of guys. It's my proudest moment or words to that effect. Now, I never knew Danny Rampling was in the army until he posted that. Mm. And people could say, well, so what? He was in the army. You then look into Paul Oakenfold's background. And before he became a record promoter and a DJ, he was a chef. He trained as a chef and he had a stint at the Royal Army and Navy Club. Hmm. Okay. Then you look into the backgrounds of some of the other movers and shakers and you find other links into the military. You find links into the establishment. The guy who founded the Ministry of Sound Nightclub or who funded it, you had this guy, Justin Berkman. Was he he a stockbroker or something? Yeah, similar to that. You had Justin Berkman, who was like the public face of it. He was a DJ that went over to New York, was inspired by the Paradise Garage Club and wanted Mm. to create a London version of it. Mm. But he got his funding from this guy, James Palumbo. Mm -hmm. And he was, uh, uh, he came from a millionaire family. He was a city Uh, boy, wasn't he, basically? Yeah, he was a city trader, basically. And he's a baron. He's now the baron of Southwark. (laughs) So he's part of the, the peerage nobility, you know. Uh, not the natural, again, not a natural career path for somebody from that background, but he got that whole thing going. Wow. Then you had many of the promoters of the early raves, like Tony Colston Hater, who came from this privileged public school background. There was this other guy that did these events called the Toffs Balls for public school boys and schoolgirls. Yeah. Uh, I forget his name, Jeremy something, I think it was, but you know, he was a public school boy as well. And you had this old guard of sort of Tory old school public school boys muscling in on the rave scene so you have to ask the question is that an aspect of control is that an aspect of the establishment making sure this whole thing goes off in certain directions mm-hmm. of course many people would say it's just about them making money they make shitloads of money out of uh, uh, promoting these raves that was their motivation for doing it but uh, like i say when you see the same patterns emerging time and time again 
you have to start paying attention if you really want the true story. Then you've got the question of where all the ecstasy came from because this stuff just started appearing overnight. It was in clubs everywhere. Everyone was munching pills every weekend. Nobody really knew where it came from. You had a few low-level, grubby little drug dealers getting busted with their little bags of pills each weekend, you know. But nobody really found out who the barons were. Kingpins, who the, yeah. yeah, the kingpins of the game. Can, can, I, ask uh, a, can so, I ask a question, Mark? The, the, yeah. I, and, and this has always bothered me. Um, and that is that LSD and ecstasy well they in some ways um kind of expand your mind and kind of make you want to go against the the grain and, and the norm so well, i i don't understand why those drugs in particular are used to i mean i can see it with opiates and and, and heroin and crack but, alcohol yeah and alcohol but i, I can't see why uh, th- these two movements really were just like it was lsd and 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 molly and and for me when i whenever i've taken those kind of substances it's kind of like you, you want to go against the norm you want to kind of tear up the rule book it, yeah. it just seems a, a it's a weird sort of point for me to well, i think the i think the point is that the leaders of that, that that kind of um those generations or those movements or the appointed leaders of those movements then get to um make political um decisions for the followers of that movement so right. they're kind of like false prophets i think that's yeah, that's the okay. argument right? yeah well, right, that makes you know, sense. I've never, I've never done any of these things myself, so I've never taken E or LSD. Uh, I'm just square like that, I guess. <laughs> but uh, I know many, many people who have, and they've told me of their experiences. And there seems to be a dividing line straight down the middle. So many people will say they've had amazing spiritual experiences on these psychedelics, these hallucinogens, and it's opened up their consciousness. It's changed their attitude towards life, and they wouldn't go back and change it for anything. But then you get another group of people who will say that it screwed up their lives. They will say that they've got mental illness as a result of doing too many E's or too much LSD. It's led to psychosis. It's led to uh, uh, bipolar disorder in some cases mm. and you know, mental conditions, Anxiety. loss of memory. Mm. That's true. And, that's, uh, that's dead true, actually, I th- Mark. I think, yeah. it, I think it affects people in different ways. It's the same thing as I touched on veganism earlier, and you can have the same argument here. You'd have loads of people that have become vegans, and they're just fine. They're perfectly healthy. I'm a vegan myself, and I've got no health problems. But you meet a whole bunch of other people that have tried a vegan diet, and they say it made havoc with their entire body. Uh, biology and they're a mess as a result and it just didn't suit them at all so i think people react to it in different ways some people are equipped to deal with a lifetime of doing psychedelics and for other people it screws them up so there's that aspect to consider Mm -hmm. but also i think we should also uh reflect on the idea that this could all have been a massive social experiment just to see what would happen if millions of people are coerced into taking these drugs every weekend in conjunction with this new style of music, which is all digital and electronic in nature, in conjunction with all these themes that were introduced into uh, the raves and the festivals and these club nights. Because you look at early flyers going all the way through to today, and you see all these new age themes, all these themes of esoteric and spiritual things going on. You see pyramids, you see all these Illuminati signs and symbols, you see UFO and alien symbology cropping up. And in the recent glut of dance events over the past few years, what you're seeing almost without exception 
is the glorification of transhumanism and artificial intelligence ideas. And to my mind, that was the long-term plan of getting this whole scene going. Because where we're at now in 2019, you've got all these massive events like Tomorrowland, Tomorrow World, uh, Dream State this, and uh, Future Music Festival that. And they're all about... Yeah, Yeah. Electric Days Carnival. They're all about in training people that are into this style of music to embrace electronic and digital ways of doing things as fantastic as the future. And what I think is going on is these this generation is being softened up to be more readily accepting of where society is headed, which is the smart grid internet of things, where everything is connected to machines mm. and where we're being coerced into embracing technology as a god. And we're already literally. seeing this in China, right? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. That, that, that's a really that's a real sort of uh, something we've got to be wary of. Uh, Black Mirror. They've got the social credit system there. Yeah, they? exactly. Yeah, it's uh, social credit, facial recognition. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you're, you're walking down the street, and in real time, you're being monitored by cameras, all done by. Uh, Artificial intelligence, of course. There's no humans doing it. It's just computers running the show. And you, your identity is being called up on a computer. All your details are there. And you have a social credit score applied to you according to how well you're adhering to the system and its rules and regulations. So if you're someone that falls into line and does everything that you're told, you'll get a high score. But if you have a bit of a rebellious maverick spirit and you think, fuck that, I'm not complying with that regulation you know that makes no sense nobody's getting harmed so i'm not going to fall in line with that because it doesn't suit me then you're going to make yourself an enemy of the state and you're going to rack up a very low score and when your face gets zapped walking down the street and pulled up on a computer uh, you're not going to get looked on favorably and there's all kinds of measures in place to uh, punish people and make life difficult for them evidently you know when they don't fall into line with what's what, required what you of- could do as well is uh, i touched on this in my latest book is you could use that social credit score and use it as actual currency. That would be an interesting thing. So you would, you would not only would you would work and you'd be um, you'd have credit from um, your work and your job, but you'd also be awarded like bonuses for towing the line, which you could then then spend oh, yeah. in designated government outlets. You know, um, it's <laughs> that's awesome. It, it's an interesting uh, and and I didn't think about the posters and the science fiction imagery that you would see. Uh, with the dance uh, scene as well, but it's going to be—it's a big business, isn't it? If you think about transhumanism and um, the kind of things we're almost um, in reach of being able to do, you know, with having uh, implants put in and microchips and this kind of thing, it's going to be really big business. And there's a really there's a vested interest in in making that popular with the younger generation, right? Yeah, and they know exactly the way to make it all fashionable and make it all appealing. Mm. You get guys like uh, Paul Van Dyke and Carl Cox and Steve Aoki and all these as the poster children for what they're trying to usher in. And, you know, guys like them and many others really are uh, the gurus of this scene because they have fan bases 
like mm. you just wouldn't believe Platforms. in terms of how they're yeah. how they're put up on pedestals. So I visit Paul Van Dyke's Facebook page sometimes and Carl Cox's just out of interest, just for research, to see the sort of things that their fans are saying about them. And you literally get comments like, you are my God. I named my firstborn child oh. after you. I follow your every move. You've changed my life. Uh, I go to every rave, every gig you do. You know, uh, I follow everything. And the level of dedication that these fans have towards these uh, false heroes and role models, because they've all been placed there and given these roles, is quite stunning. It's mind control to the very extreme. And so uh, that's why you see the same names headlining all these big festivals all over the world. And it's why you see the same themes and the same icons and the same motifs being used at all these festivals as well. You've got large numbers of people all doing drugs, primarily E, listening to electronic dance music produced at who knows what kind of sound frequencies mm. with who knows what stripped in and embedded into the recordings because this all happens on an unseen level and because it's digital electronic in nature you can put stuff in and uh, be affecting people psychologically and emotionally and spiritually without them realizing it's going on and then you've got all the graphics and all the visuals as well depicting all these esoteric themes and just consider that cocktail when you're completely open and rife for manipulation uh, under the influence of all these different things. And this is happening every weekend in every country around the world, affecting millions of young people. And they're tapping in, and, uh, uh, Mark, into basic human um, nature. I've, I think in one of your presentations you mentioned the Moby comment, which I think was awesome, about the campfire yeah, yeah. and the banging on the log. Um, it's exactly the same as the flashing lights and the banging music in a nightclub. Yeah. It's, we've, been, we've been attracted by this uh, phenomena for, for let centuries, me, let me right? Let me pull that Moby comment up because it, it it's really awesome, is isn't quite, it? Yeah. The, the point that he made was incredible. This was on BBC Four's Can You Feel It? How Dance Music Conquered the World, which is a show they put out last year, a three-parter to mark yeah, the 30th Yeah, I, I watched year. this and I stopped it and I paused it and I took a notepad and I wrote down what he was saying. It was, it was such a great quote. So Yeah, well, I've got the quote here. And Moby, incidentally, comes from a Freemasonic family. From and he's Melvin. descended from... Yeah. Richard Melville, who's the guy that wrote the Moby novel. Herman, That's how he got Herman, it. Herman Melville. Um, Herman Mo- Melville, Mo- yeah. Moby right. Dick, yeah. Yeah. So his quote was, this is what he said on the program, if we were sitting here 25,000 years ago, someone might ask, what do you think is compelling those people to bang on logs and dance around a fire while lights flicker in their eyes? You also just described modern dance culture. So an anthropologist could use those same terms to describe music and dancing and hedonism 20,000 years ago mm. or five minutes ago. So they've tapped into these <laughs> primal states love of mass. They're like the modern-day shaman, aren't they, these guys? Yeah. Mm. All we've got is a contemporary packaging of these influences that have been there at a very deep level of the human condition yeah. and it's almost forever. kind of like religious as well because these guys are on like an altar at this sort it's, of back it predates of the room. religion it's before religion it's it's like I, yeah it's in I, our dna yeah i see it but but it's funny that djs are kind of raised up oh right big, on the platform yeah <laughs> on a platform yeah and it's kind of like they're Absolutely. giving a sermon an altar you know yeah it's exactly like that and it, it's, mm. isn't it ironic that on saturday night all over the world you've got djs up there on podiums raising their hands up like a priest and they've yeah. got thousands of people in the congregation and they're controlling <laughs> them with their Brilliant. every move with their every sound and then just 
a few hours later, as Sunday morning dawns, their parents are all going to church <laughs> and a different, a different kind of evangelist gets up there on the podium to the assembled flock and delivers a different mm. kind of message. But mm. there's so many parallels between the two. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, should, should we get into the smiley face then? Because we, we were talking about the imagery and, uh, you know, you, I, I know in one of your previous presentations you were talking about the eyeball uh, that Paul Oakenfold used for his night, and, and the yeah, smiley yeah. face. Uh, I think they're the two sort of ones where, that stand out. Where did the out. smiley come from? I, I I don't know, but I think Mark does. I, I think it's an old... Um, I, well, I'll, well, I'll the, let Mark explain. Yeah. No, no, I think the smi- I think James is asking about the smiley face, right? Oh, the smiley. Yeah, yeah so uh, the smiley face has a long and checkered history. It was used a lot by the American advertising industry in the late 60s going into the 1970s in the era of the Vietnam War. And reportedly, it was a way of kind of trying to cheer up the American populace because <laughs> there was all this bad news about what was going on in Vietnam and all these social changes and stuff. And so uh, companies started using this smiley face just as a way of improving the public mood, we're told. It cropped up as an emblem of the Watchmen, which is this sort of dark graphic comic mm. that came out. Is that whistling your end, by the way? It is, yeah. We uh, the thing about Thailand is uh, you give a Thai a whistle and you ask them to direct traffic and they just they just oh, it's go a crazy. police a police whistle or a security guard yeah a security it, guard isn't it exactly it's someone letting the traffic out of a hotel mark so right okay. trying to yeah, ignore all, all it like, it's not too loud was... this end actually because uh, we've got headphones yeah. on I guess but yeah I'm I'm well, sorry well I just wondered if it was outside my house but it's clearly not. <laughs> Uh, it, it's so, it's yeah. some raver with white gloves on outside. Yeah, he, he brought his <laughs> wrist whistle like, to the it? event. <laughs> yeah, with, with a uh, some Vicks vapor rub and, and a, a, a smiley t-shirt on as well, yeah, and, some, and some poppers. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so smiley, yeah, it cropped up as an emblem of the Watchmen, uh, which was this graphic novel series put out by Alan Moore. This guy's name, Alan Moore. Yeah, mm. Alan Moore. That's it. And it had a blood splattering on it as part of the uh, storyline that unfolded there. And this smiley face emblem then cropped up on the sleeve of Bomb the Bass, Beat Dis, which is a very important British dance record that came out early 1988 and got to number two in the charts. It was the creation of this guy, Tim Simonon, and he featured the smiley face with the blood splatter. And then as Danny Rampling's Shum Club Night got going, 87 going into 88, Rampling adopted the smiley yellow face as the emblem of that night as well. And that got copied and mimicked by all kinds of promoters. And it just became the unofficial emblem of the whole Acid House movement. And it was exploited by D-Mob towards the end of 88 as well, when they had, we call it Acid, the the anthem of that whole scene. So it just became intrinsically linked with uh, the Acid House scene. And you've had all these revival nostalgia events going on last year to mark the 30th anniversary. Rampling has done a bunch of events. He did one in New Year's Eve uh, in Amsterdam where he used a version of the Smiley Face logo that makes it look like it's an ecstasy pill. So, uh, mm-hmm. you know, nice nice and responsible there. Yeah. Uh, anyway, there is a dark side to the Smiley Face, it turns out. And if you've had William Ramsey on your show talking about the Smiley Face killings, you'll know what it's all about. Mm. So in a nutshell, Uh, He's done some great research into this, and it's this series of murders which has been taking place in the United States, and there's a bunch of them in the UK as well that fit the same pattern, where young men of college age go missing 
on their way back from being out drinking at social functions. Uh, they're last seen, you know, walking away from these events. And the next time, the next thing anyone hears of them, their body has been discovered in water. So they get found in lakes and rivers and creeks and things like this. And in the vicinity of where the bodies are found, you've had a smiley face daubed onto rocks or trees or, you know, uh, on walls in paint or whatever. And uh, the mainstream media and the police, it would seem, have been treating these events as random standalone things. And for the most part, they've not been connecting them as the work of a group because it can't be the work of just one individual because of the ge geographical spread of where all these bodies are washing up. Mm. William probably told you this. Yeah, but I mean, there were just, a couple of. Sorry, Mark. Yeah, yeah, it's as far out as Australia. Uh, you know, really? in, in, in some of the uh, port, in some of the harbours in Australia, and we've got Manchester, Bristol, and then we've got the US ones as well. So it really well, I didn't is quite know they were in Australia. Yeah, there's a couple. Yeah, there's a couple. If you look on YouTube, there's uh, you, you can dig them up. Yeah. Oh, well, the smiley face has been found there as well. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is a recent thing. This is a recent. Uh... In the last ten years, yeah. So it could have been yeah. internet based. It could have been a, a ring. Absolutely. On the dark web or something. Absolutely, James. Yeah. Yeah. yeah something yeah, like that. It's been that. the last it's last really ten weird. years or so from what yeah. I gather. I knew that there's been loads in the United States in all kinds of different areas and it's been happening in the UK as well. And uh, it would certainly indicate that there is a coordinated group that's carrying out these killings. And it would certainly appear that the smiley face has some relevance to it. Uh, you could make the argument that it's a copycat kind of thing and, you know, people are just doing it to, for shits and giggles or whatever. Strange kind of shits and giggles. Yeah. But uh, I think there's going to be some dark, sinister element to it and some meaning behind the smiley face uh, being put there. Uh, I don't know what Slant William may have put on it, but, uh, you know, there's different schools of thought as to what it all means well w w william referred us to his uh, online documentary the, the one that you can buy on vimeo so i won't give it away i'll let people go and buy that and uh, he, he gives a few of his uh, hypotheses is, is that the right word james mm, almost, almost yeah <laughs> he gives a few of his yeah w whatever the word is uh on, there's on... something i mentioned in in my book i've yeah. just pulled it up here i did mention uh that the smiley face appears to lie within the doctrines of chaos magic yeah. and if you look at the opening lines of the book onion peelings from alistair crowley's book of lies you find the phrase the universe is the practical joke of the general at the expense of the particular quoth frather perderabo and laughed and alan moore has admitted to being an occultist with a fascination for the works of crowley and he incorporated some of these ideas from the book of lies into uh, his watchmen comic so this all speaks to this nihilistic kind of satanic worldview which states that life is just a sick practical joke and uh, mm. it leads to this satanic mindset of do whatever you want, do what they will, you know, mm. uh, just appease your own base, profane instincts and desires, because ultimately there's no point to life or the universe. It's all just one big joke. And that could be the origin of this smiley face, which takes on more sinister and dark overtones as you add new elements of the story. Wow. Well, it was funny how the smiley face arrived in my life 
I lived in a small, in a town, a suburban town called Alpington in the UK, and it was like 87 or 88. And suddenly these, this, this imagery was everywhere. It's like everyone had these badges, T-shirts, they're in the record stores. I think you could buy like um, smiley paraphernalia in, in Woolworths. You know, it's like the mm-hmm. whole phenomenon <laughs> of the smiley took over the town suddenly and... and, and, and um, you know, it, it was almost like a military operation. Now I think about yeah. it. Well, well, I went to the base. Back, uh, um, Mark, you, you might know Back to Basics, the nightclub in Leeds. That, that, that's oh, my, Leeds, yeah, yeah. That, that's my kind mm. of uh, stomping ground up your onsen and Back to Basics. But I, I went to the Basics 20th. Twentieth birthday party, and there were smiley faces hanging from the ceiling, spinning. Everyone had smiley face T-shirts on and badges. This was like it was a craze. Two thousand and eight or something. No, no, sorry, it was. It must have been two thousand and two or something. Yeah, but yeah, everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, no, none of these things. Yeah. None of these things happen by accident. I, yeah. I, I just. I can no longer accept that you can have any kind of trend or big social movement that affects huge numbers of people and has its own iconography and imagery. I just can no longer accept that that happens uh, at the hands of just a couple of visionary promoters that decide to to do the thing and it just takes off like that. Mark, Mark, do you see see anything sort of uh, rearing its ugly head now? Apart from the transhumanism... Well, yeah, yeah. I, I, ju- I just see transhumanism and the AI futurist society being endlessly pushed right. by electronic dance music now. Uh, that's all you're really getting. And the music now just sounds horrific to me. I mean, I know I'm, I'm old school. I'm a nostalgist. Uh, I'm like that with hip hop as well. I love hip hop of the 90s, mm. but I can't stand to listen to the stuff that's around at the moment. Mm. And to my mind, all of it has gone way down the toilet. It's just in the, the very bottom of the cesspit now. But electronic dance music now, I listen occasionally to Paul Van Dyke's show and uh, Judge Jules's show and Pete Tong's show just to keep up with what sort of sounds are getting put out there. And it's it's just, you know, disgraceful yeah, to a, me. A lot just, of it's trash, it just yeah. sounds like noise. It's just noise. It's just electronic, annoying noise that is dissonant and discordant makes me panic wants me to mm. makes me want to switch it off uh and yet you've got a generation of young people who think this stuff is the absolute shit this stuff is the dog's bollocks this stuff is uh, it defines their life you know this is their life they think it's absolutely fantastic so there's a whole generation that's been entrained and raised with this stuff whereas old bastards like me uh, who can remember better days, better times, different ways of doing things. Uh, are, you know, our views are just no longer relevant because we're not mm. a generation that's in the crosshairs anymore. M- Mark, just... what did you make, and, and I don't like his music at all, I'm, I'm not a trans head at all, I'm, I'm a, a definitive sort of, definitely into house music and deep house and Chicago stuff, but yeah. Avicii, what, what do you make to Avicii's death? That, that was a weird one. Do, do you know anything about that? Absolutely. It makes yeah. no sense. It's the same as so many of these other bizarre deaths. Uh, yeah. It's the same as Dolores O'Riordan of the Cranberries. You know, she turned yeah. up dead in a bathtub, uh, we find out, in the Park Lane London Hilton in January of last year. And then in April, 20th of April, we get news of Avicii turning up dead in the private residence of the Sultan of Amman, the royal family of that particular state. Mm. So uh, that's a bit weird, isn't it? What was he doing there? 
uh, in the first place then. Yeah. So we're told that Avicii burnt himself out very quickly, very young in the game, after a few very intense years of touring and being worked like a dog by uh, his controllers. His health had taken a, a severe battering. He's supposed to have had his pancreas removed and part of his liver and stuff in operations because he just got so sick from the touring lifestyle and doing drugs and alcohol. And he just wanted out. He announced at the age of, what was he, 26, I think. He said he wanted to retire. And uh, he had a couple of years where he pretty much faded from the limelight and gone into obscurity. And then the next thing we hear of him, he's turned up dead in very suspicious circumstances at this place in Amman. And his family made a statement which seemed to hint at him having taken his own life. They were saying, you know, uh, it was all too much for him and uh, he just couldn't handle it. And they were implying that that's what happened. But then some details of how he died emerged and we're told that he died from a broken wine bottle. Uh, he'd evidently cut himself with a broken wine bottle. Yeah, Now, if you've, had, if you've had enough of this life and you want to do away with yourself, you have different options available to you. One of those options is to take a bunch of pills and go to bed. And if I was ever going to do that, not that I am, uh, so that's not something that's on the cards for me. Mm. But if, I, if ever I was in that situation, that's what I'd choose. It's easier. Who, who is going to choose to smash a wine bottle and do themselves in that way? Especially in Oman. Can it you all even seems very strange. In Oman? <laughs> probably in the Sultan's palace. Right, you can, right yeah. <laughs> probably not legally. But. Right, right. And then uh, you look into Avicii's name, the meaning of his chosen artist name. So his real name was Tim Bergling. He went by the name of Avicii. And it comes from uh, the Buddhist philosophy, apparently. And it's a phrase that refers to the lowest depths of hell or purgatory. It translates as something similar to that. So it's a very dark artist name for him to have chosen. Uh, so that's another strange element. I can only point these things out and leave people to address the question themselves and ask whether the official story that he'd had enough of it all. And this is another thing, you know, he seems to have achieved his, t his way out of the limelight. You know, he, he wanted out of the game. He yeah. wanted to quit tour, tour that's, that's and he did thing. quit touring. Yeah. So you would think he, he got what he wanted yeah. and he was no longer suffering all the pressures of being a performer. And yet he still wanted to end it all. We're told. What a grisly end. Is, is yeah. there any connection, do you think, to Cornell and Chester Bennington? Because they were all around the same time, but uh, do you think they're, they're connected in it's any way, Mark? Not, it's probably not a direct connection. I mean, there's elements of those two guys that, you know, their deaths that make no sense either and all mm. kinds of strange red flags. I don't think any of those were directly connected. But with the Avicii thing, the fact that he was no longer a profitable commodity for the dance music scene, for the music industry generally, could have something to do with what happened to him because the industry likes its assets to go on and on and on, to continue delivering, to keep putting out albums, to keep putting out shows. If you're no longer capable of doing that, mm. you're of no use to them. They've invested a lot in you and you're no longer delivering. So given the psychopathic mindset of the people that we're talking about here that run these industries, it would be nothing to them to do away with somebody that has mm. outlived their usefulness. They have no empathy, right? In a heartbeat. Mm. Uh, so we have to consider that option here. Mm. Crazy. Um, 
I just want to end, if, if possible, on some of your more far out, Mark, as I like to call them, uh, uh, theories. Uh, two of them, that which I really love, are the, the Jim Morrison one. And James, James, you brought this up earlier when, when we were sort of discussing our game plan for tonight. Uh, and, and Paul McCartney. Do, do, do you want to just touch on them? We're, we're nearly at an hour, so we'll, we'll just have a little bit of fun in the last five minutes just talking about... Uh, should we start with Jim Morrison? Well, Jim, it's interesting we're in Bangkok because a guy who uh, wrote the kind of definitive biography called No One Gets Out of Here Alive, <laughs> Jerry Hopkins, um, lived, lived in town here um, until quite recently. He died last year, actually. Um, and he knew Jim quite well. And uh, I would speak to him about Jim and stuff. Um, and my, my theory with Jim was that he had a kind of really strict upbringing and he rebelled against that in the worst way possible by, by, by becoming this horrible um, antisocial um, alcoholic, drug-addicted um, rock star. Um, and then I listened to some of your um, other podcasts um, over the last couple of days, and, and the theory you have is much more interesting than mine. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it's not even so much a theory when it comes to Jim Morrison. It's known, it's documented that he was the son of the U.S. Naval officer, George Stephen Morrison, that was involved in the Gulf of Tonkin incident in, Viet- in uh, Vietnam, which springboarded the whole Vietnam War. That's who Jim Morrison's dad was. He used to say in interviews that his parents were dead when they quite clearly were. Yeah. And uh, so Jim, to my mind and to the mind of many other researchers, was a shining example of a lifetime actor. Yeah. And his entire stage persona was a construct that yeah. wasn't really him he was playing a role and uh, when you see him up on stage getting up to all this debauchery and exposing himself and pushing drugs and all this that would all have been part of that social movement of the time of trying to normalize these kind of relaxed attitudes to sex and drugs and rock and roll and then you have him apparently turning up dead in a bathtub again in paris in 1971 at the age of 27 and no one saw a now, body, right? To... No one saw a body or anything with the, after the Paris yeah, incident. Yeah, well, uh, his his partner, Pamela Corson, is supposed to have found him dead. And then she and killed herself, like a year later or something. She didn't last long. She died in 1974 of an alleged overdose. Mm. It's the same thing with Jimi Hendrix, you see. Uh, Jimi Hendrix, his girlfriend, Monica Danneman, is was around when he met his end, which would appear to have been at the hands of Michael Jeffrey, his manager, his manager yeah. who, who was a British military intelligence officer. But Monica Danneman, Jimi Hendrix's girlfriend, uh, turned up dead some 20 odd years later oh, in no 1996. Way. Her body was found in a fume filled car uh, in a garage wow. at her home. So, uh, yeah, with Jim, we get the story that he just passed away in a bathtub of some kind of undisclosed overdose. But like you say, nobody really saw the body. And there's all kinds of unanswered questions about whether he really died or not. So a lot of people think that that was a fake death and that he was just retired off into the background somewhere after a job well done. Mm. But I don't buy the idea that he was genuinely rebelling against his parents. I think he was the son of military intelligence, Mm. and he was given a role, and he played that role. Fascinating. Paul McCartney, well, uh, my stance on that has changed somewhat over the years. So when I first got into all this research, I bought the official conspiracy story, which is that the real Paul McCartney died in a car crash in 1966 and was replaced by 
an imposter that's been playing the public role of Paul McCartney ever since. Now, this subject area is so vast that you could probably spend the rest of your natural human life looking into it looking eight hours a day. photos and stuff and comparing them and all this yeah. kind of... And still not get answers. Yeah. So where, where I'm at with that now is there's actually no verifiable proof that the real Paul McCartney died in 1966. There's tons of hints and clues and little symbolic pointers in Beatles album sleeves and in yeah. uh, photos and stuff to suggest that this happened. But you've got to remember that symbolism can be hinting at all kinds of things. It's, it's cryptic. It's ambiguous. What I can say is that when you look at photographs and video footage from over the years, there has been more than one Paul McCartney. Mm. So I can't say for certain whether the guy we have today is an actor or whether it's the real Paul, but I can tell you there's been at least two, and it would seem more than two, stepping in and out of the public role of Paul McCartney all these years. It's not just been one guy. Oh, so and I, I can say that with he could absolute have had a, double a body double, yeah. That's, to that's to fulfill some gigs. Yeah, maybe he like need to be, needed to be on the, in the studio, but there was a gig that needed to be played or something like that. Well, yeah, it's fascinating. All, all the Beatles used... All the Beatles used doubles, actually. They've admitted right. to this. They, they would have decoys when they wanted to. Yeah, they were yeah. definitely decoys, slip, yeah. yeah. Slip in the back door of a venue quietly. They'd put the decoys out front for all the screaming crowds. But what we're talking about with Paul is more than just a decoy that would appear like that. We're talking about two Pauls that played the gigs and two Pauls that would do interviews and two Pauls that you'd see out and about. Uh, so some people think they were twins. They think that we've not been told that Paul McCartney was one of fraternal twins. That remains a possibility. Other people think that they just trained up this other guy wow. and uh, he underwent surgery and all kinds of alterations to make himself look more like Paul. And this is the thesis hypothesis of the book, The Memoirs of Billy Shears, this infamous uh, book out there credited to Thomas U. Harriet which has just got a new version uh, released a few months ago. And it purports to be the autobiography of the guy that's no been way. playing the pub, can't he? Spilling no. the beans. This would make telling- a fantastic documentary, wouldn't it? It'd make a fantastic uh, comparing yeah. well, all, the, all the footage. And- get on it. Yeah. In, in the book, the, the Memoirs of Billy Shears, you've got uh, purportedly this guy, his name's William Shepherd. And his nickname is Billy Shears, hence the reference to Billy Shears on the Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club album. And he's telling you all about how Paul died, according to the book. I'm not sure I buy that. But he's telling you all about how he was groomed for the role from birth because he comes from a Freemasonic family. And he's just another lifetime actor. And he was given this role to play for the rest of his days. And he's doing it out of allegiance to these societies that he belongs to. And he's given you all kinds of inside knowledge about the inner workings of the Beatles, which, to my mind, can only come from somebody that was a part of that mm. inner circle. It's either that or this author's got a hugely vivid imagination and is a very accurate researcher. So that's what the premise of this book is. However, it's presented to us as a work of historical fiction, and it's referred to as a novel. And the reason they've done that is... legal reasons. Exactly. So, so if anyone tries to launch any kind of legal action against them, they can say, well, we've told you that part of it is fiction. So uh, you shouldn't be taking it that seriously. But what I think we have is certain revelations being put out there in plain sight so we can no longer make the claim that we weren't told what went on, mixed in with a bunch of fiction 
that can be shown to be fiction if it ever needs to be. They can say, oh, come on, look, this is obviously bullshit, this bit that we put in here, you know. And this, of course, is what people say about certain truth researchers. You know, people will say this about Alex Jones or David Icke. They will say, for the most part, they're telling you the truth, but they mix in a bunch of diversions and disinformation so that you don't know which parts of what they're telling you are genuine mm. and which parts are designed to lead you off down the garden path. So that's what we're faced, faced with, with this whole conundrum. Awesome. Matt, what a beautiful way to end. Mark, we waited a few months to get you on, but you didn't disappoint, sir. Uh, yeah, be, being a, a sort of fan of music and pop culture, th- this was excellent for me. Uh, well, really enjoyed you. it. Um, and you, you didn't disappoint at all. It was it was fantastic. Uh, James, anything else to ask? Or? Well, just, uh, you know, best regards from Bangkok. It's yeah. lovely to hook up this way. Really, really fascinating. Yeah, it's cool, man. Um, and Mark, where, where can oh, people yeah, get hold of you, brother? And uh, the book. Where can I get the book? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, both books, Musical Truth Volumes 1 and 2, are available on Amazon. But if people want to get a copy from me direct, a signed copy, they're welcome to send me an email to markdevlinuk at gmail.com. And if they can pay by PayPal, we can just uh, do it between ourselves and keep Amazon out of it. So my main website is markdevlin.co.uk. Uh, my YouTube channel is slash Mark Devlin TV. So there's a whole load of my public talks and presentations up there. I've also got my Good Vibrations podcast and all the conversations from that are posted on that YouTube channel. Uh, that's about it, I think. Uh, yeah, I mean, markdevlin.co.uk is the one-stop shop for all the links, basically. Excellent. Awesome. Mark, thank you so much. Uh, yeah, we've been This Strange Life. Uh, you can catch me on Twitter at CryptoMickey. You can catch us... Uh, on the interweb at thisstrange.life or on uh, our, I guess, podcast Twitter and Instagram at strangelife. This. And email us at thisstrangelifepodcast at gmail.com. Where can they get hold of you, Jamesy? I do Twitter now. I just got back onto Twitter. So James (laughs) Newman BKK. Because I want to start using Twitter again. So contact me there. All right, Mark, you've been wonderful. Thanks, brother. All right, thanks, guys. Thanks for having me on. Have a great day. No worries, man. Cheers. Sorry for the wait. (laughs) <laughs> no worries.